Hello. Good morning. You can hear me. Uh, my name's James. I'm part of the team here. And uh, we're going to be uh, reading from Psalm 13 this morning. So if you've got your Bibles with you, uh, if you'd like to turn to Psalm 13, which is in the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, it will also uh, appear on the screen behind me, so uh, don't fret if you don't have a Bible with you. Uh, the words will come up on the screen. Uh, and we'll start from verse 1. It says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord for he has been good to me. We're going to come to that, back to that psalm in a few minutes' time. But if you didn't know, this week could be a life-changing week for me and for millions of people in this country and, in fact, around the globe. Uh, and those that know me, I am a Liverpool football club fanatic uh, I live and breathe it, and uh, I went so far as to marry a woman from Liverpool just so I could get free accommodation uh, when, I, when I go and watch matches. Um, and uh, it's been 29 years since Liverpool won the Premier League. 29 years. And although I can tell you who those players are, um, I have never in my lifetime witnessed Liverpool win the league title. This week could be the end of our waiting, the long drought, and the Reds finally lift the trophy. It's hanging by a thread, and I am very, very nervous. Uh, some of you may also know that the city of Liverpool is also living with something else that happened 30 years ago, when 96 Liverpool fans went to watch their beloved Reds play at the Hillsborough Stadium in Sheffield. And 96 of them were crushed to death, never to return home. The city has never recovered from the tragedy. And after multiple inquiries about the reasons why it happened and investigations as to who is responsible, the families of the 96 and the city at large are still waiting for justice. On the one hand, waiting for victory. On the other, waiting for justice. And this morning I've called this message the promise of waiting. I don't think I've met anyone who enjoys waiting. When have you ever seen anyone in a queue 
uh, and they're just having a genuinely brilliant time in a queue. I've never seen that. Uh, Sarah and I uh, queued up a couple of times to go and watch Wimbledon, and, and the fun of camping in a queue soon dissipates when you're woken up the next morning at 4 a.m. to meander through some random fields in Southfields for the next six hours, or, or queuing up for rides at Alton Towers or Thorpe Park. I don't remember seeing any people having a whale of a time in the queue and just waving people through. I'm just enjoying the queue so much, you just keep going to the rides. I, I don't think I've ever seen that, and we would all wonder what on earth, who in earth is this person doing that. The truth is, in our society and culture, we all know that it is all about the immediate. We've got broadband now instead of dial-up. Uh, we've got Amazon Prime same-day deliveries. We've got contactless payments, high-speed trains, and much of this is great. But what it can do is it can tamper with our view of God and how he works. You see, when we bring our worldly expectations to a, an all-knowing, all-powerful, infinite God, well, it's like they curdle. It, it just doesn't work. You see, most of the things in our world, most of the technology and transport that we use, the way we shop, the way we eat, the way we communicate with each other, the way we work and study, how we spend time with each other, the way we manage our money, so much of it is based around convenience. Convenience is the aim of the game. I mean, just last week, uh, I was with some friends. We watched The Truman Show, which is what a great film. I've seen it before, but it was good to see it again. We ordered pizzas, uh, and they took an hour and 40 minutes to arrive. And uh, I was on the phone demanding refunds, free pizzas. I was on Twitter tweeting them. Where is, I was threatening legal action, writing emails. I'd been inconvenienced, and I wasn't happy about it. And sometimes it can feel like believing in Jesus and putting your trust in him is actually a giant inconvenience. We're so used to having our own way, aren't we? So used to having a certain level of service, so used to the idea of instant gratification, that when we're faced with a real-life issue, like a sick family member or job uncertainty or relationship problem or financial crisis, we're not really set up and prepared for the fact that we might not get what we want or we might, may have to wait considerable amounts of time for a situation to change. At its best, waiting is an inconvenience. It's often really frustrating and at its worst, it's incredibly painful. And so we're going to look at this idea of waiting this morning. And I just want to, for you to take a minute just now uh, and just to think, what is it that you are waiting for? Some of you are waiting for this service to finish and for me to stop talking. But on a more serious note, some of you are waiting for someone to be healed or for a loved one to recover from illness. Some of you are waiting for a spouse or children or a job or 
to move into a new house or to buy a house or to feel settled or to find friends. You're waiting for that career break or leadership opportunity or waiting for reconciliation with a friend. And for David, who, who wrote this psalm that we read at the beginning, he opens with a sense of frustration and pain. Just look at it in verse 1. He says, How long, O Lord? How long do I have to wait? And so, whatever it is you are waiting for, I hope that by seeing what the Bible says about waiting, that you might take hope and courage in what you are waiting for. And so to help us, we're going to look at three questions. We're going to look at why do we have to wait? How do we wait well? And what is it that we are all waiting for? So why do we have to wait? Well, firstly, there's no actual real definitive answer. You can't say the reason why this person is waiting is because of this, or that person is waiting because of that. But it's clear that in the Bible, that waiting is just a part of life. In fact, in all our experiences, we have all had to wait for something. And there's something in the Bible that tells us that actually God leads people into periods of waiting. So before we look a little bit closer at the psalm, let me just give you a few other examples in the Bible of people having to wait for God to do something. So in the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 15, uh, God comes to a man called Abraham uh, and says to him, look up at the heavens and count the stars. If indeed you can, so shall your offspring be. He's promising him millions of descendants. But Abraham was 75 years old and was childless when God had said that. And Abraham must have been thinking, well, this needs to happen fairly sharpish because the clock is ticking. And yet it was another 25 years until Sarah, his wife, had Isaac. Abraham waited, or, or perhaps think of Joseph, another well-known character in the Bible. Remember, he had a dream, and uh, one day he would be in a position of power and authority, and his own brothers would one day bow down to him, uh, and, and Joseph would go on to be betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, uh, accused of a crime he never committed, uh, was in jail for years, and Joseph finally after many years, became the leader that he knew God had called him to. Or, or think of Hannah, who in bitterness of soul wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son. And later we read she'd been praying out of her anguish and her grief. Hannah waited. And finally, let's think about David for a few minutes. We've been following this story of David over the last few months, and we know that just as a young boy, he was anointed to be the future king of Israel, anointed in secret by Samuel, who is Hannah's son, by the way, and uh, uh, it would take almost 20 years for David to actually become the king of Israel. And in that time, David too faced opposition, faced Goliath, and then was chased 
by King Saul at the time. It was like a manhunt for David for years. And so when we get to Psalm 13, it's no surprise that David begins with those statements. How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts for? And day after day have sorrow in my heart. How long will my enemy triumph over me? David had to wait, and he was asking the question, how long? And why? Why was he having to wait? Why did those other people have to wait? Why do we have to wait? And there's a whole load of ideas that we could talk about this morning, but I just want to pick up two, which is, firstly, waiting humbles us. It humbles us because it it demonstrates that we're not in control of everything. And we are powerless often to change a situation. I mean, any time I've applied for a job or gone to an interview, you know, I do my best to present well, you know, try and sort the hair out a little bit. Uh, It's easier now. Um, And uh, you're waiting for a decision, aren't you? You're waiting for that decision. And you go through a whole range of emotions, like, I really want the job. And then you're like, haven't heard anything for a while. Oh, I don't care about the job. And if they don't give me that job, they are making a massive mistake. And you go through the range. Uh, but you do eventually get to a point where you realize the decision isn't yours. God's in control. I'm not. And in that process, you're being humbled. Waiting loosens our grip on our own lives and we become dependent on God. And David seems to be worried that perhaps God has completely forgotten him. And by the end of verse two, David has said, how long will my enemy triumph over me? David knows that the only one that can change the situation that he's in is God. And in his waiting, he becomes dependent on him. And whilst the primary reason for waiting isn't necessarily because you need to be humbled, we do tend to like to have everything boxed up, neat and tidy, know the plan, whatever is convenient for us. But God in his grace humbles us because he knows that what we need more than anything else is him and to become dependent on him. And so the world says, be strong and independent. You'll have heard that. Be strong and independent. That's what the world says. This is what God says. God says, if you become dependent on me, that's how you become strong. And that's where you find life. And in Proverbs chapter 3, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So firstly, humility. But secondly, we often have to wait because God is looking to prepare us for what is to come. God is looking to build your character. He's looking to shape you. He's looking to develop you into the likeness of Jesus. And that is not an instant process. Times of waiting or times of preparation are important, and you can't shortcut those things. 
Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, the worst thing that can happen to a man is to succeed before he is ready. It's a great quote. And in most situations, we're never 100% ready, are we? I've just recently become a parent, and there was no way I was ready walking into that. And so it's not about feeling 100% ready to go into a situation, but there are character and spiritual forming experiences that are significant if we're to step into what God is calling us into. And so if you shortcut those processes, you may well encounter problems down the line. So for me, uh, during university, I felt like God had called me to something around church ministry. Just felt a sense that God was calling me into that, but had no idea what that really looked like. I was studying history, had no idea what, how it was going to work out, to be honest, but just had a growing sense that perhaps church leadership or church ministry might be something that I would like to do in the future. But like any good history graduate, you just have to apply for teaching instead. Uh, and so I became a teacher for a number of years. And, uh, and throughout that time, still trying to wrestle with this thing of, oh, I feel like God's calling me to this, but how on earth is this going to work? And all that kind of thing. And I, it took a few years for the first kind of few opportunities to come about and started speaking at Christian Union, leading worship a bit, taking opportunities and was asked eventually to lead the student work here at City Church. Uh, and so I had to uh, go part-time with school. I was head of department in the school and did that for three days and then was doing student ministry here for two days. And even during that time, I did that for two years. And even that time, I was like, this isn't really working. And where's the breakthrough? And when am I, when's it going to happen, Lord? How long? And uh, it took two years to try and wrestle with that. And then, and then I got asked to join the staff team full-time two years ago. And uh, in the moment... I was experiencing frustration, Uh, I was getting annoyed at God, just when's this going to happen? And there was a sense in which I was trying to push it through. And looking back on those two years of juggling two jobs particularly, I can now see God's hand in it. Firstly, the experience of working was just good for me to to have experience of doing that uh, in quite a challenging area of Bristol, uh, leading a team. But also there were lots of changes going on at church here as well. And and I really believe that God had his hand on me in that moment, that I wasn't here all the time. There were some significant challenges going on at the time. And I think that was God's grace to me. But also, God was doing something in me. He was doing something in me. He was molding me and shaping me. And essentially, God was saying, you're not ready for this yet, James. I want to form you. I want to develop maturity into you. And I remember reading this quote from John Ortberg who said, what God is doing in us while we wait is as important as what it is that we are waiting for. The process is important. The waiting is important. And David's story, like we've already said, is a story of preparation. It's a story of promise and calling, but also a story of of isolation, of, of waiting, of uncertainty. And the journey was important for David. He had to rest in the knowledge that God's timing was always right. 
And so we often wait because God is doing preparation work in us and so that we might have the character to shoulder responsibility well. And so I think we can all agree uh, that waiting is a part of life, but how do we do it well? How do we wait well? Well, I think we can learn something from the psalm uh, about how David responds to what he's waiting for. And here's some principles for us. It's clear that David is active in his waiting. It's clear that he's active in, in several ways. Firstly, let me ask you a question. What do you notice about the first two psalms? I don't know if we can have the first two psalms up on the screen. But what do you notice about the first two psalms and how David has written them? They're all questions. They're all questions. How long, God, have you forgotten me? How long are you going to hide from me? Where have you gone? How long am I going to be left with my own thoughts and this sadness and deep depression living with me for? The questions aren't polite, they're raw. It's raw emotion that David is coming to God with, full of honesty, vulnerability, comes to God with his frustration, his pain, even his anger. You just imagine it. How long do I have to wait for? And he goes to God with his questions. You know, this wouldn't be in the Bible if God didn't want you to approach him with your frustration your anger, your grief, and your pain. It's in the Bible because God expects that from us. In fact, it's a true test of faith when someone in their pain and their grief goes to God first. That's a true test of faith. When you go to God first with your questions and your pain and your anguish, And you say, why is this happening to me? Why am I going through this? David goes to God with his questions. And the Psalms are full of emotion, anguish. And not only are you invited to do that, but you are expected to do that. He wants you to do that. He wants you, he can handle it. He wants you to come with your questions. And the other thing that we see uh, from David in this psalm is that he's asking to meet God now. He's asking to meet with God now, to see him now, to remember him now. Just look at verse 3. It says, Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Look on me. It's not a future thing, it's now. Look on me, God. Answer me, God. Hear what I'm saying right now and respond to me now. David wants change now. And in his waiting, he desires to meet with God. And we can so often be looking for the next thing, can't we? We can be so disillusioned with waiting that we forget that we can meet with God right here, right now. You can miss 
what is going on around you. David, despite the situation he was in, called on God in his time of need and in his time of waiting to meet with the living God now. And in some sense, David didn't wait to do that, did he? Didn't wait to come to God with his pain and his grief. Didn't try and filter down, sleep on it. He just goes straight to him and says, this is how I'm feeling. How long? Unfiltered. And we can wait well when we are active in our waiting. Even when it feels like God has withdrawn himself from us, perhaps, or God feels distant to us, he wants your unfiltered, honest, vulnerable emotions to be poured out to him in whatever situation you're waiting for to change. And it doesn't come with the promise that he's going to answer in the way that you want. This isn't a sermon about waiting because finally it's going to happen for you. But there's something of the process, the waiting in which you come to God and you say, this is my situation. This is how I feel about it. I feel hurt. I feel in pain. I don't know where else to turn but you, God. I need your help now. And so as well as there being our own individual experiences of of waiting, and we see that with David, there's also a reality in which the, the whole of the Old Testament is a long story of waiting. What we start to see is that there was a there was a waiting that was going on that was at a far deeper level. And it's it's difficult to describe, but it's like a a slow drum roll beginning. Right at the beginning of the Bible, it's like this slow drum roll. And as you travel through the Old Testament, the drum roll gets faster and louder. And and God starts to speak to different people and he raises people up. He raises a, a Moses up or he raises a Joshua up or a David to come and lead the people. He speaks to Isaiah and he says this to Isaiah, he, says, he talks about there being a, a man of sorrows who would be crushed for the sins of the people. And there's this expectation and there's this yearning, there's this understanding that, that life isn't as it should be. And something needs to change and as the Old Testament comes, the drums get quicker and they get louder. And, and there's this yearning and then there's this thirst for, for someone to come and sort this mess out and sort this world out. And, and, and God continues to speak to people and, and when it seems that there's a, there's a climax to the whole thing, it's just silence. The drums stop. And there's 400 years of nothing. The lights go down. The Old Testament is closed. And there's nothing. There's just a hush for 400 years. And then out of the silence, there's a voice. A voice of one calling in the desert saying, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And the silence 
was over. The wait was coming to an end. And the promised Messiah, the Savior, the liberator, the true king that had been promised and prophesied for centuries, this man of sorrows had arrived. Jesus Christ, who would come and and fulfill every promise that had ever been made centuries before, would come and he would live a life for 33 years and like a lamb to the slaughter, who didn't open his mouth, demonstrated perfect patience, crying out his plea, his, his question, his anguish, his grief as he hung on the cross What did he say? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Son of God came to his Father in his grief and his anguish and his pain. And he said, why have you forsaken me, God? Came to God with his question. And when it all seemed over, when Jesus had died... And it all seemed over. The disciples and the followers who had witnessed execution and burial, when it all seemed over, from the bowels of the grave, death was defeated on the third day. Jesus came back to life. Evil and death swallowed up in Christ's victory. History changed. Futures changed. And the wait was over. Sin and death was defeated, and the Savior had come. And with Jesus' victory over death accomplished, the truth is, is that even more than we find ourselves waiting, here's the thing, God is waiting for us. He's waiting for us. You know, God is so patient with us. He's so patient to us. This is what Jen Wilkin says in her brilliant book, In His Image. She says this, we allow the most trifling annoyance to test our patience. The way someone chews, the dirty dish left on the counter, the the forgotten indicator, these minor perceived grievances invite our anger to rise. But God, against who we have committed and continue to commit actual sins, both small and great, bears with us patiently in the full knowledge of every one of our offenses, past, present, and future. God, in his patience, is waiting for us, waiting for us to respond to him, waiting for us to take him at his word, waiting for us to come to him to ask for mercy. And you know, he doesn't owe us anything. And yet we owe him everything. We owe him our lives. And he's waiting for us to realize that, to come to him in humility, to come to him knowing that we need him to conform us into the likeness of Jesus, to come to him with our questions and our pain and our grief and our anguish and to give him our lives. And so just as we end, the question I have for you is, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for 
in your life. Perhaps you're here for the first time. Perhaps it's the first time you've ever even heard anything like this, that the Son of God would come into this world and live a perfect life and die on your behalf for the sins and the wrong things that you have done. And he would take them upon himself so that you may have life and life to the full. Maybe that's the first time you've heard that. And let me say this, whatever you are longing for, whatever you are waiting for, you will only find true satisfaction in Jesus. You will only find it in him. I stand as someone who looked to all sorts of things for fulfillment and satisfaction and I've only ever found it in Jesus. You will only find satisfaction in him and so the invitation is to stop waiting and to come to Jesus. Or for many of us, whilst we know that Jesus has come and that we have his word and his spirit living in us and we have the church to be part of, there is still a longing within us. It doesn't do away with the waiting, does it? And we recognize that the world around us isn't right. And so there is a longing, isn't there, for the day when Jesus will return and make all things new again. And for many of us, there may be a reality, in fact, that it's, it's not going to be an end, the end that we were looking for in this life. There is a reality in what we're waiting for may never happen. And yet the promise of Scripture and the promise of God and the promise of Jesus to you is, I will be with you. I hear you. I'm never going to forsake you or leave you. I'm in this with you. And I am coming back again. And what you experience in this life is just a glimpse of the glory that is to come. And David sees this at the end of the psalm. I'm just going to invite the band back up again. And we're going to respond by taking communion. But this is how David ends the psalm. He says this, But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices In your salvation, I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. Why don't we stand, and I'm going to pray. And as we take communion, there's those two responses that you can make this morning. Firstly, if you've never responded to Jesus before and you would like to take that step, then there's an opportunity to do that this morning. But there's also a response, a second response, that as we take communion, we're we're proclaiming Jesus' death and resurrection, but we're also proclaiming that one day he will return. And we're also inviting the Spirit to come and meet us in our pain, in our suffering, in our waiting. And we can do that this morning. And so as we take communion, uh, let's have that heart of asking God to meet us where we are. Uh, I think Jason's going to explain what's going to happen now. But why don't I pray just quickly. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you meet with us and you hear our cry. 
And Lord, in the waiting, we recognize that you are doing all sorts of things in us and through us. But Lord, we thank you that the promise is is that I will be with you surely till the very end. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.